Chapter Thirty One of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craik. Chapter Thirty One. Never since her birth had Olive felt such a bewildering weight of pain as when she awoke to the full sense of that terrible secret which she had learned from Harold Gwynne. This pain lasted, and would last, not alone for an hour or a day, but perpetually. It gathered round her like a mist. She seemed to walk blindfold, she knew not whither. Never to her, whose spiritual sense was ever so clear and strong, had come the possibility of such a mind as Harold's, a mind whose very eagerness for truth had led it into skepticism. His doubts must be wrestled with, not with the religion of precedent, not even with the religion of feeling, but by means of that clear demonstration of reason which forces conviction. In the dead of night, when all was still, when the frosty moon cast an unearthly light over her chamber, Olive lay and thought of these things. Ever and anon she heard the striking of the clock, and remembered with horror that it heralded the Sabbath morning, when she must go to Harbury Church, and hear, oh, with what feelings, the service read by one who did not believe a single word he uttered. Not until now had she so thoroughly realized the horrible sacrilege of Harold's daily life. For a minute she felt as though to keep his secret were associating herself with his sin. But calmer thoughts enabled her to judge him more mercifully. She tried to view his case not as with her own eyes, but as it must appear to him. To one who disbelieved the Christian faith, the repetitions of its forms could seem but a mere idle mummery. He suffered, not for having outraged heaven, but for having outraged his own conscience, an agony of self-humiliation which must be to him a living death. Then again there awoke in Olive's heart a divine pity, and once more she dared to pray that this soul, in which was so much that was true and earnest, might not be cast out, but guided into the right way. Yet who should do it? He was, as he had said, drowning in a black abyss of despair, and there was no human hand to save him, none save that feeble one of hers. Feeble, but there was one who could make it strong. Suddenly she felt in her that consciousness which the weakest have at times felt, and which, however the rationalist may scoff, the Christian dare not disbelieve, that sense of not working, but being worked upon, by which truths come into one's heart and words into one's mouth, involuntarily, as if some spirit, not our own, were at work within us. Such had been oftentimes the case with her, but never so strong as now. A voice seemed breathed into her soul, Be not afraid. She arose, her determination taken. No, she thought, as standing at the window she watched the sun rise gloriously. No, Lord, my Lord and my God, I am not afraid. Nevertheless, she suffered exceedingly. To bear the burden of this heavy secret, to keep it from her mother, to disguise it before Mrs. Gwynne, above all, to go to church and have the ministry of such an one as Harold between her and heaven, this last was the most awful point of all, but she could not escape it without betraying him, and it seemed to her that the sin, if sin it were, would be forgiven, nay, her voluntary presence might even strike his conscience. It was so. When Harold beheld her, his cheeks grew ashen pale. All through the service his reading at times faltered and his eyes were lowered. Once, too, during the epistle for the day, which chanced to be the sixth Sunday after Epiphany, 
The plain words of St. John seemed to attract his notice, and his voice took an accent of keen sorrow. Yet when Olive passed out of the church, she felt as though she had spent there years of torture, such torture as no earthly power should make her endure again, and it so chanced that she was not called upon to do so. Within a week from that time Mrs. Rothsay sank into a state of great feebleness, not indicating positive danger, but still so nearly resembling illness that Olive could not quit her, even for an hour. This painful interest, engrossing all her thoughts, shut out from them even Harold Gwynne. She saw little of him, though she heard that he came almost daily to inquire at the door. But for a long time he rarely crossed the threshold. "'Harold is like all men. He does not understand sickness,' said that most kind and constant friend, Mrs. Gwynne. "'You must forgive him, both of you. I tell him often it would be an example for him, or for any clergyman in England, to see Olive here, the best and most pious daughter that ever lived. He thinks so, too. For once, when I hoped that his own daughter might be like her, you should have heard the earnestness of his amen. This circumstance touched Olive deeply, and strengthened her the more in that work to which she had determined to devote herself, and a secret hope told her that erring souls are oftentimes reclaimed less by a Christian's preaching than by a Christian's life. And so, though they did not meet again alone, and no words on the one awful subject passed between them, Harold began to come often to the dell. Mrs. Rothsay's lamp of life was paling so gradually that not even her child knew how soon it would cease to shine among those to whom its every ray was so precious and so beautiful, more beautiful as it drew nearer its close. Yet there was no sorrow at the dell but great peace, a peace so holy that it seemed to rest upon all who entered there. These were not a few. Never was there anyone who gained so many kindly attentions as Mrs. Rothsay. Even the wild young floodyers inquired after her every day. Crystal, who was almost domiciled at the hall, and seemed by some invisible attraction most disinclined to leave it, was yet a daily visitor, her high spirit softened to gentleness whenever she came near the invalid. As to Lyle Derwent, he positively haunted them. His affectations dropped off, he ceased his sentimentalities, and never quoted a single line of poetry. To Olive he appeared in a more pleasing light, and she treated him with her old regard. As for him, he adored the very ground she trod upon. A ministering angel could not have been more hallowed in his eyes. He often made Mrs. Rothsay and Olive smile with his raptures, and the latter said sometimes that he was certainly the same enthusiastic little boy who had been her knight in the garden by the river. She never thought of him otherwise and though he often tried, in half-jesting indignation, to assure her that he was quite a man now, he seemed still a lad to her. There was the difference of a lifetime between his juvenile romance and her calm reality of six and twenty years. She did not always feel so old, though. When kneeling by her mother's side amusing her, Olive still felt a very child, and there were times when near Harold Gwynne she grew once more a feeble, timid girl. But now that secret bond between them was held in abeyance, their intercourse sank within its former boundary. Even his influence could not compete with that affection which had been the day-star of Olive's life. No other human tie could come between her and her mother. Beautiful it was to see them, clinging together so closely that none of those who loved both had the courage to tell them how soon they must part. Sometimes Mrs. Gwynne would watch Olive, with a look that seemed to ask, "'Child, have you strength to bear?' but she herself had not the strength to tell her. 
Besides, it seemed as though these close cords of love were knitted so tightly around the mother, and every breath of her fading life so fondly cherished, that she could not perforce depart. Months might pass ere that frail tabernacle was quite dissolved. As the winter glided away, Mrs. Rothsay seemed much better. One evening in March, when Harold Gwynne came laden with a whole basket of violets, he said, and truly, that she was looking as blooming as the spring itself. Olive coincided in this opinion, nay, declared, smiling, that anyone would fancy her mother was only making pretense of illness, to win more kindness and consideration. "'As if you had not enough of that from everyone, Mamma. I never knew such a spoilt darling in all my life. And yet see, Mr. Gwynne, how meekly she bears it, and how beautiful and content she looks.' It was true. Let us draw the picture which lived in Olive's memory evermore. Mrs. Rothsay sat in a little low chair, her own chair which no one else ever claimed. She did not wear an invalid's shawl, but a graceful wrapping-gown of pale colors, such as she had always loved, and which suited well her delicate, fragile beauty. Closely tied over her silvery hair, the only sign of age, was a little cap whose soft pink gauze lay against her cheek, that cheek which even now was all unwrinkled, and tinted with a lovely faint rose-color like a young girl's. Her eyes were cast down. She had a habit of doing this lest others might see there the painful expression of blindness, but her mouth smiled a serene, cheerful, holy smile, such as is rarely seen on human face, save when earth's dearest happiness is beginning to melt away, dimmed in the coming brightness of heaven. Her little thin hands lay crossed on her knee, one finger playing as she often did with her wedding ring, now worn to a mere thread of gold. Her daughter looked at her with eyes of passionate yearning that threw in one minute's gaze the love of a whole lifetime. Harold Gwynne looked at her too, and then at Olive. He thought, Can she, if she knows what I know, can she be resigned, nay, happy? Then what a sublime faith hers must be. Olive seemed not to see him, but only her mother. She gazed and gazed, then she came and knelt before Mrs. Rothsay, and wound her arms round her. "'Darling, kiss me, or I shall fear you are growing quite an angel, an angel with wings.' There lurked a troubled tone beneath the playfulness. She rose up quickly and began to talk to Mr. Gwynne. They had a pleasant evening all three together, for Mrs. Rothsay, knowing that Harold was lonely, since his mother and Eily had gone away on a week's visit, prevailed upon him to stay. He read to them— Mrs. Rothsay was fond of hearing him read, and to Olive the world's richest music was in his deep, pathetic voice, more especially when reading, as he did now, with great earnestness and emotion. The poem was not one of his own choosing, but of Mrs. Rothsay's. She listened eagerly while he read from Tennyson's May Queen. Upon the chancel casement, and upon that grave of mine, in the early, early morning the summer sun will shine. I shall not forget you, mother, I shall hear you when you pass, with your feet above my head on the long and pleasant grass. Good night, good night, when I have said good night for evermore, and you see me carried out from the threshold of the door. Don't let Effie come to see me till my grave is growing green. She'll be a better child to you than I have ever been. Here Harold paused, for looking at Olive he saw her tears falling fast, but Mrs. Rothsay, generally so easily touched, was now quite unmoved. On her face was a soft calm. She said to herself musingly, "'How terrible for one's child to die first, but I shall never know that pang. Go on, Mr. Gwynne.' 
He read, what words for him to read, the concluding stanzas, and as he did so, the movement of Mrs. Rothsay's lips seemed silently to follow them. Oh, sweet and strange it seems to me, that ere this day is done, the voice which now is speaking may be beyond the sun, for ever and for ever with those just souls and true, and what is life that we should moan, why make we such ado, for ever and for ever all in a blessed home, and there to wait a little while till you and Effie come, to lie within the light of God as I lie upon your breast, where the wicked cease from troubling, and the weary are at rest. After he concluded they were all three very silent. What thoughts were in each heart? Then Mrs. Rothsay said, Now, my child, it is growing late. Read to us yourself out of the best book of all. And when Olive was gone to fetch it, she added, Mr. Gwynne will pardon my not asking him to read the Bible, but a child's voice sounds so sweet in a mother's ears, especially when— She stopped, for Olive just then entered. Where shall I read, Mamma? Where I think we have come to, reading every night as we do, the last few chapters of the Revelations. Olive read them, the blessed words, the delight of her childhood, telling of the heavenly kingdom and the afterlife of the just. And he heard them, he who believed in neither. He sat in the shadow, covering his face with his hands, or lifting it at times with a blind, despairing look, like that of one who, staggering in darkness, sees afar a faint light, and yet cannot, dare not, believe in its reality. When he bade Mrs. Rothsay good-night, she held his hand and said, God bless you, with more than her usual kindness. He drew back as if the words stung him. Then he wrung Olive's hand, looked at her a moment as if to say something, but said it not, and quitted the house. The mother and daughter were alone. They clasped their arms round each other, and sat a little while listening to the wild March wind. It is just such a night as that on which we came to Farnwood, is it not, darling? Yes, my child, and we have been very happy here, happier, I think, than I have ever been in my life. Remember that, love, always. She said these words with a beautiful, life-beaming smile. Then, leaning on Olive's shoulder, she lifted herself rather feebly from her little chair and prepared to walk upstairs. Tired, are you? I wish I could carry you, darling. I almost think I could. You carry me in your heart evermore, Olive. You bear all my feebleness, troubles, and pain. God ever bless you, my daughter. When Olive came down once more to the little parlor, she thought it looked rather lonely. However, she stayed a minute or two, put her mother's little chair in the corner, and her mother's knitting basket beside it. It will be ready for her when she comes down again. Then she went upstairs to bed, and mother and daughter fell asleep, as ever, closely clasped in each other's arms. End of chapter 31